Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing today? Uh, Yeah, it feels like that sometimes. I get it. That's cool. Uh, Well, it's great to be with you guys, um, especially as we wrap up our Of the Spirit series. Um, My name is Young, and I am one of the pastors here at Riverview Church. Uh, If it's your first time here, uh, well, kudos to you for being here on uh, 4th of July weekend. Uh, you have found our church uh, in, at, the, at the very end of our of the, uh, of the Spirit series where we take, we're taking a look at the different fruits of the Spirit uh, as the Apostle Paul calls them in the book of Galatians. And throughout this entire series, uh, we heard uh, numerous or various teachers across our church speak on the different ways that the fruits of the Spirit are born in our lives uh, and what that looks like in the day to day. And we wrap up the series, as Tom mentioned, uh, with the fruit of the uh, Spirit known as self-control. And I think it is a fruit of the Spirit that is actually quite pertinent to our current cultural moment uh, that we find ourselves in uh, and the waters that we are swimming in uh, as a society, at least here in the West, at least here in America, Um, Excuse me, I, I, I won't lie, uh, I actually kind of forgot that the kids will be here in this service, so I'm sorry if they seem bored out of their minds, because uh, today is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture uh, rather than um, a, a sermon in that sense. And I also won't lie to you guys, because when I saw that I was preaching on self-control, I thought I was probably, amongst all of our teachers, all of our pastors, uh, the least qualified to preach on this. Uh, For example, I'm not even joking you, yesterday, my wife and I, we made a bet that I would not buy anything, clothing or tech stuff for myself from now till my birthday, which is in September, because I buy too many things without asking her. So, you know, uh, that, that is just kind of a little peek into where I'm at with self-control because retail therapy is a thing. Um, and the last two years, that has been my uh, form of therapy uh, with all the stress of this world. <laughs> um, and my hope is that I win this bet between my wife and I because I get a nice winter jacket on my birthday um, <laughs> if I win. And if I lose, I actually lose a decent amount of money. So <laughs> not trying to do that. <laughs> but she's the breadwinner anyway, so it's really her money that she's just getting back. So you know, that's, that's just what it is. Um, anyways, where am I? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, we're over here, yeah. Uh, so please, he- hear me when I say this. Um, that, you know, as I'm preaching about self-control today and, and this idea of self-control, uh, I am also talking to myself. I'm preaching to myself because, uh, quite honestly, I, I, I myself needed the most. And what I want to do for us is actually read uh, verse 16 through 26 in chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. Um, and I want to read this because I think Paul, in a brilliant way, kind of wraps up full circle this whole idea of the self. Uh, and he starts this idea uh, really in verse 16, as we uh, may have started the series with. And he kind of wraps it up with this last fruit of the spirit of self-control. And I found it just so brilliant and fascinating that Paul chose to do this. 
If you want to turn your Bibles to Galatians 5, uh, we are in verse 16. Uh, let me read this for us, and then let me pray for us, and we'll jump in here, all right? Or you can follow along on the screens on the side. The Apostle Paul says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit... And you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a big warning. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who have belonged to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Would you please pray with me as we ask the Lord for help to understand his word and how it can apply to our lives in this day and age. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for such a a beautiful Sunday that we can come and worship and and gather as a church family. Pray, Father, for those who are here for the first time. Uh, We pray, Father, that they would feel welcomed and seen and loved and cared for within our church. I pray, Father, that as we talk about self-control in in a day of of, uh, this new era of hedonism that we see in our world, uh, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, what it means to submit our lives to you, the complete opposite of where this world is taking us. So I pray, Father, with such a large task at hand that we would ask for your help from your spirit, that we would lean into the gospel in the moments of our failings. Um, And I pray, Father, that at the end of the day, that we would give all credit to Christ in how he transforms our lives from the inside out. Help us, Lord, in this way. Help me in this way. We pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. So it's the 4th of July weekend, and as we celebrate America's independence, uh, this idea of freedom is all around us. It is a theme that we see right now, uh, especially again this weekend. And I think there are a few different understandings of this idea of freedom uh, that we need to lay out before jumping into, uh, into talking about self-control and freedom, right? I don't have this on the screen, but please follow along. Uh, there is, our, of, of course, the American understanding of freedom, right? We have our rights. We have our constitutional rights. We have, you know, freedom from tyranny, freedom from oppression, right? This is, is, these are uh, generalities of American understanding of freedom. We also have a cultural understanding of freedom, where in my personal opinion, uh, I think it's a bit different than our American understanding of freedom. In one one word, if I could summarize our cultural, societal understanding of freedom is the word autonomy, right? 
Maybe you guys have heard of autonomy. The Greek word, it comes from autos and nomos, which is autos is the self, and nomos is the Greek for law. You are self-law. You govern your own self. You can do what you want. This is me being autonomous, right? Um, Kind of, or being weird. Um, And we also have biblical freedom, where if you do a, a, a word study of freedom, right, within the Bible, you'll find that it is a bit different We have freedom from sin, freedom from Satan and death through the the perfect life, sacrifice, uh, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Biblical freedom is living within uh, boundaries of biblical morality. And the thing about biblical freedom is that it should help us swim through the waters of American freedom and cultural freedom. For example... Uh, my wife and I just moved to a new apartment complex, and we, we got a dog earlier this year. Her name's Kona. She's a golden doodle, and she's crazy. Um, and we, I would take her out on walks in our old apartment complex. But the thing about our old apartment complex is that there was no designated place to walk our dog. We lived on the east side. I love the east side. It's so great. My heart's there. But there was just no good place to walk her. But the reason why we got a new apartment complex, or we moved to that new one, is because they had a dog park in there. It's great. It's got a fence and everything, right? And the thing about that dog park is that it allowed, it gave us the comfort that we can walk her and she can be off her leash and be free. In a sense, I could have done that too when we lived on the east side. If we took her off the leash and she could just run around, but there was the danger of what? She could get hit by a car, run on the main street, run on Michigan Avenue, get hit by a car, and there's danger. But within the dog park in this new place, there's a fence, and I can let her off the leash, and she's still free. She's, She's still contained, but she's, in a sense, really free. I don't have to worry about any dangers of her getting hurt or killed or whatever. The idea of biblical freedom is that we live in the boundaries of biblical morality or morality that is defined by the ways of God. You see, the reason why I talk about freedom and want to start a conversation about self-control by talking about freedom is that self-control and freedom are like two peas in a pod. They're like brother and sister. Uh, when I was trying to think of like another thing to compare this to, to parallel this to, I actually thought of um, you have racism and classism. Two different things in its own regard, but they are two peas in the same pod. You cannot discuss one without the other. If you want to talk about self-control, you must discuss freedom. Do you see? In a new age of modern hedonism, which is really just kind of finding pleasure for yourself or finding what is pleasurable to you, self-control is to actually swim against the current that we are currently in. It is to swim upstream in our current cultural waters. It's also a strange concept because self-control once used to mean abstinence, right? You abstain from doing something. That is what it once used to mean in our culture. So for example, like eating a party-sized amount of Oreos late night by yourself, which is what I did while prepping this message. And now... Society's current attempts at achieving self-control is actually shifted. 
Society's current attempts at achieving self-control is not to abstain anymore, but rather, please follow, it is to give full autonomy to the individual, and therefore, whatever the individual may choose to do with their life, with their body, is celebrated as good. Do you see the difference? It used to be apt abstaining from doing something that you knew was not good for you, But now the cultural tides have shifted where self-control means actually you have control of the self, you have full autonomy, and therefore what you choose to do with yourself is celebrated as good. This is very important for us to understand what the current cultural understanding of self-control is, because if you identify as a Christ follower, you must ask the question, well, what do I do now? How do I swim in these waters? We also must ask, how did we get here as a society? I have three ideas that I want to share with you guys. They're not exhaustive. That list is not exhaustive. It's three things that come to mind for myself. And then we will see how they uh, test against the truth of God's word. The three things is here. Postmodernity to post-truth. So talking about philosophy, the philosophical waters. Second is uh, Sigmund Freud's personality theory. The id, the ego, and the superego. And then three is the rise of hyper-individualism. I'm so sorry, kids. If you fall asleep, it's really okay. Like, I just, I feel terrible. I totally forgot. And parents, if you want to explain to your kids, like, what this means, good luck. Um, Let me restate the modern-day position on self-control in the way of a question, or a few questions. Do we actually have control over ourselves? Or have we changed the sideboards in how we understand what self-control is? The, the, very things in, the, the very things in society, whether honestly the legal policies of our land, the cultural waters that we say are what is more morally right and wrong, have we changed the sideboards in how we understand, uh, to understand what self-control is? And lastly, we must ask ourselves, is this even the way in which Christ followers are to live? Right? At the end of the day, that's how we, uh, we have to ask, how, how does this affect our lives? Let me give you a response to the last question here. The idea of self-control in the life of a follower of Christ is paradoxical. Let me say that again. The idea of self-control in the life of a follower of Christ is paradoxical in our modern world. To have self-control in the eyes of the world is to simply have autonomy over one's feelings and impulses, their own body. But for the Christ follower, self-control comes from the relinquishing of control and the ways of the flesh and the full surrender of autonomy to the Holy Spirit and to the ways of God. That is a hard thing to say, quite honestly, for both men and women who identify as Christ's followers. 
In other words, self-control is a paradox for the Christ follower because although we do have autonomy, the trajectory of our lives is towards relinquishing that autonomy to God and submitting to his ways. Paul also reinforces this idea, Galatians 5, 16 through 17. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh, meaning kind of like our, our carnal desires, right? Uh, it's the Greek word sarks there. The, for the flesh our carnal desires uh, is what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. That's not a new idea, what I'm sharing. I remember several years ago when I first heard the words um, self-care, uh, as it was followed up by phrases like you know, mental health, uh, spa day, right? therapy, retail therapy, self-love, and the list goes on and on. Uh, and and you know, in my personal opinion, I think the whole idea of the rise of self-care is a beautiful thing. Like that, I found so much rest and healing in, in taking care of my mental and emotional health. It's affected my spiritual health. And also around the same time as we saw the rise of this idea of self-care, um, I was also in my circle of you know, evangelical Christians. I know evangelical is kind of like a loaded word now, but I'll just say it. Evangelical Christians. I was also hearing Jeremiah 17.9 being quoted. Maybe you did as well. This is what it says. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? It was weird. It was like society on one end was saying, hey, it's all about self-care, self-love. Take care of yourself, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum with amongst you know, very conservative Christians, they were saying, well, you know, don't, don't talk about your emotions. Don't even think about your emotional health because who can understand the heart? Your heart is corrupted and tainted by sin. And that verse was quoted time and time again because it was used in opposition to the rising and shifting tide of the postmodern waters, meaning that truth is relative, you, you make your own truth, as it transformed into post-truth waters. Post-truth, let me just define terms here, is essentially where our feelings and our emotions take precedence over, our, uh, over what is truth. Whether it is subjective to you or objective truth, your feelings and emotions take over priority over what is true. In both, both instances of self-care and the quoting of Jeremiah 17.9, they were addressing the similar issue, which is our emotions and our feelings. Please follow along here. This is why this is important. The reason why our emotions and feelings were at the core of the conversation over the last five to ten years, we asked this question, because what else could we trust if truth was becoming more and su- more subjective as each day passed by? You couldn't trust what was truthful anymore. But what you did know was truthful was how you felt, because you felt it. You see? You see how tr- uh, feelings and emotions now begun- begin to tr- uh, trump over truth. In place of truth, our feelings reigned supreme. That is how we shifted from postmodernism to post-truth. But as Christ followers, we must ask ourselves, what do we do in this cultural situation? 
And I think some you know, great things came about this, especially for those of us who may have a more reformed theological background. Uh, with the rise of feelings and emotions, we actually got more in touch with our emotions. Like, I can say that for myself. I was very like, kind of like stoic, like, you know, just blank face, whatever, more heady than emotion, than heart. And I think some unhealthy things also came out, namely that emotions were polarized. We either trusted them way too much or we just threw that out entirely. And for the Christ follower, I would suggest that we take the posture of understanding our hearts, our feelings, our emotions, that they do actually matter and can be trusted to some degree because no matter how tainted with sin they may be, we also know that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. That yes, Jeremiah was correct, that the heart is incurable. But yet we also know that Jesus can cure incurable things. And the Spirit sanctifies and renews our hearts each day, but we must not treat our heart, our feelings, our emotions as ultimate. And we must lean into the Word of God to give us constant direction and guidance with our emotions. And the reason why I bring this up, because you might be thinking, why is he talking about our feelings? The reason why I bring this up is that I believe it is significant to how we have gotten to understand self-control in the way that we do in our society. I'm guilty of saying this phrase, so I'm not here to shame you if you've said these phrases, but phrases like, well, do what makes you happy. You've said this before? Yes? I've said this to people. Do what makes you happy. If it feels good, it must be good. Right? There's been a rise in these phrases because emotions and feelings, what we, how we feel, how it makes us feel on the inside dictates our actions. Do what makes you happy. If it feels good, it must be good. Second, on how I believe we've gotten to this point in our society when it comes to self-control, we have Freud's personality theory. I promise I will try not to bore you with this. If you see this image on the screen um, of the iceberg, yes, there you go. If you took AP Psychology, if you're in high school, or you know, if you took AP Psychology, or if you're a psych major like me, uh, this may look familiar to you. And if you did not do either of those, that is okay, because these concepts are things that you probably have heard of, but now you have labels and spaces to put them in. Namely, we're talking about the id, the ego, and the super ego. I'm not going to go super deep into this, but what I want to highlight here is the rise of the modern ego. Okay, you see here, the definition here is that the ego, what it does is it's the executive mediating between the id impulses, like, like our sexual impulses, aggression, etc., and the super ego inhibitions. It tests reality. It says, where's the line? How far can I push the line and it pushes rationality. It operates mainly at the conscious level, but also at the pre-conscious level, okay? And the thing about Sigmund Freud, as a psychoanalyst, um, what he did was he was trying to figure out how does the mind operate? How does the human mind operate? How does the human mind make decisions? How does the human mind understand itself, right? And the thing that I want to highlight here is the ego. Because my, in my personal observation, and amongst many others, 
I think that in our day and age today, that the ego, that the pathway in society has led to the ego to become inflated. That it's all about you. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was trying to figure out the timeline of how each generation, boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, and I wonder how for Gen Alpha, Gen Alpha is a thing, by the way, okay? So if you are, I don't know, 2010 and now, I think you're Gen Alpha, right? So that's a thing. How did it progress with regard to the self? Yeah, you feel old now, right? Millennials, we feel old? Yes, yes, yes. And I came across a common theme that... Each generation dealt with some level of me, okay? For, so, for example, you know, oh, man, I forgot. I left my phone in my seat because I was going to do this. I was going to take a selfie because millennials, we were known as the selfie generation, right? It was the rise of, like, the, the smartphone and, you know, duck faces and whatever, right? We were known as the selfie generation. This current generation of Gen Z is known as the TikTok generation, Right? It's all about how, or or social media generates. It's all about how many followers can you get? How viral can you get? It's about me in a different way. And the rise of the ego is so interesting to me because it is interested in finding pleasure realistically. And the thing about the ego is that the more you consume yourself, it's not interested in right or wrong for you. The boundaries of right and wrong, the boundaries of morality, of even self-control begin to get wider. As truth becomes more subjective to you, as the rise of the ego becomes, more, uh, becomes wider, the surface area in finding pleasure increases and self-control becomes less and less appealing and applicable. Do you see? The rise of the modern self comes with many warning signs for the Christ follower. Because the surface area of what is truth becomes wider and wider and wider, and self-control becomes less and less appealing. But the Apostle Paul gives us a stark warning, verse 16, we just read it twice already, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Do you guys believe that people can change? Yeah, I'm seeing some head nods. Do you believe people can change? Honestly, if you say no, that's fine. Because I I also believe that people can change. The gospel, according to Paul, was not believe in Jesus plus works. Because I believe that Paul understood that in order to change, behavior modification was not the means to do that. That in order to look different than the rest of society and to be part of the family of God, it wasn't through behavior modification, but it was a full submission of one's life and allegiance to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And Paul understood that when one submits their whole being to Jesus Christ, he knew that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in that person and that deep Heart change is what changes the person, not behavior modification. 
See, the Holy Spirit, as we're talking about the fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, what it does, it gets into the nooks and crannies of our hearts and does a deep work and changes us from the inside out. Which is why I think Paul can so confidently say that if we walk by the Spirit, then we will certainly, he doesn't just say we might fight the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say maybe sometimes we can fight the desires of the flesh. He says certainly we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He is full, doing full send, 100%, like just throwing all his money and at the, the reality that the Holy Spirit can actually change us from the inside out. You know, I appreciate that Fro, uh, Sigmund Freud's personality theory is just a theory Because though it is quite accurate, it has pl- received plenty of critiques within the world of psychology. But if his theory is true, and the ego and the superego can change, then that is great news for us. If the mind can change, if the heart can change, that is beautiful news for us. Because if you are here today, and you find yourself stuck in a pattern or in a lifestyle of self-gratification, whether it's through any form of addiction, there is hope for you that you can change. But it's not by, you know, behavior modification. I would contend that a beautiful place to start is by submitting one's life to Jesus. And and I will say this, I'll be the first to say, just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean overnight you're going to be free from your addiction. I pray that that would be a miracle over your life. I know people who are stuck in addictions, and they are faithful followers of Jesus. But, and at the same time, submitting one's life to Jesus is not behavior modification. It is a deep heart work that that is where our lives begin to change. And the beautiful thing about how God has made us, the beautiful reality that the ego and the superego, that the mind and the heart can change, is that when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and convicts us to go left or to go right. When the world says go left or right, it goes in the opposite direction. What the Holy Spirit does with the convictions is that it leads to different lifestyle practices. And praise God that he made human beings with neuroplasticity. (laughs) Seriously. Science is a beautiful thing. Our physiology is a beautiful thing. That the Holy Spirit works so deep within us that when you want to do the very thing that you are are habitually doing that you know is not good for you, the Holy Spirit says, no, there's a better way. And when you learn to submit your life to, to submitting to the Spirit, to the convictions that the Spirit gives you, your mind literally, the neurons that fire changes, the hormones in your mind changes... And we come to a point where we can actually practice self-control. It's beautiful. It really isn't just supernatural. It is also natural. As is with all other fruits of the Spirit, self-control is not just meant for the self, but rather self-control, much like all the other fruits of the Spirit, is meant for the benefit and the life of those around us. My third proposed reason as to why we may be in the current cultural moment on a perverted understanding of self-control is because of a growing hyper-individualism. I'm not trying to mince words here. I'm being serious. 
to not bore us all to death. I think one of the easiest ways I can share how this has shifted over the time is the way that we consume media, okay? Consuming media. In the early 1900s, uh, radio was used commercially for the first time, and I can only imagine that there were a handful of channels for people to tune into. In 1927, the first TV was created, and I don't know how many channels there were, but I can only imagine that if you were in California, you were probably watching the the same handful of channels as people over in Maine, maybe, I don't know. In 1983, the greatest thing in the world was invented, the internet is officially born, and it ushers society as each year progresses into more and more of an individualized media consumption. In 2007, the iPhone is created, and a new era of individualized media consumption through social media apps is born. Present day, you want to get your news from different sources? The world is your oyster. You can go on YouTube, and you can find me. You literally can't. Like, if I wanted to, I could, you know, that's my point. You can go on YouTube and find someone who has no idea what they're talking about, give you the news. (laughs) That's the era we live in. You can find whatever you want to hear to reinforce your position because our society has become so hyper-individualized. But the waters of hyper-individualism, my friends, goes much deeper than just our media consumption. It has moved into areas of truth, religion, human sexuality. It has moved into the ideas of our own selves. And the list goes on and on and on. In this hyper-individualistic society, the normative lifestyle is that full human autonomy is achievable and therefore it lands us in the waters where self-control is not about abstaining from what is wrong, but like I said early on, it is about enjoying what is right to you. Right? It is a new age of hedonism. That is why we see a rise in pornography usage. I know kids are here, but hey, they're already swimming in that water. Early on, I think the the average age that kids, young kids are exposed to pornography is what, age seven now, I think? Eight, maybe? I don't know. That is why, honestly, if you haven't heard it from any other sermon, you're going to hear it from me now. That's why even the rise of things like OnlyFans is a thing. Pornography usage and hyper-individualism, the rise of things like that come up. The rise of human sexuality being you make whatever gender that you want to be. That is how we've gotten to the place that we are in now. I know this is a hot-button issue, especially over the last week. That is how we got to a place in our country with abortion. Right? Is that the woman is just, that is your choice. You do what you want to do with your body. And I know that this is a hot button issue. I will say this also. That is also not just a female only issue, it is a male issue as well. Because it takes two to tangle. And the negligence of men 
who seek to use women for their own gratification is an issue. The place of the church falling short of providing help, living for the other, and providing help for single mothers is also an issue. I wish I could talk about abortion for the whole, I wish we could do a whole series or something like that on this. This is so nuanced than just a pro-life or pro-choice conversation. Those are gross generalizations. It's actually very unhelpful, in my opinion. But what I want to share with you is how did we get to a place with something like abortion in this country to where we are now? And I believe, truly, it is at the very least these three things that have paved the way for us to be in this cultural moment that we are in. How do we care for both the mother and the child? I believe that is the question we must ask. Because the way of Jesus, the way of the Spirit, is this. The Spirit looks out for the others while the flesh looks out for the self. That applies to almost every single issue that we deal with in our current culture moment. That the flesh looks out for the self while the spirit looks out for the others. And let me say that as a church, we are called to look out for others, especially the most vulnerable and the most marginalized and the most oppressed. And shame on us if we ever fall short of that. Self-control for the Christian means that we also relinquish the ways of the self-gratifying flesh so that others do not get hurt. So that we do not get hurt. Because there are things like sexual sin that Paul says actually is is an undoing to the self. We look out for others as a way of practicing, of living with the Spirit so that others find themselves empowered and encouraged, so that others may see the goodness of Jesus as we lay down our own fleshly desires. That is what true self-control looks like. Jesus portrays this beautifully, almost, uh, not almost, actually perfectly on the cross in Matthew 27. It says this, Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Self-control in its purest form. Self-control in its purest form. Jesus, who is fully God, who had all the power in the world, could have stepped down from the cross and showed everyone who he was in that sense. But in his humanity as fully man, he also wrestled, I think, with this idea of self-control, and that he triumphed because of the spirit that dwelt within him. 
And as we discussed today, self-control for the follower of Christ is relinquishing the control we want over our lives for the sake of others. We see that beautifully portrayed on the cross. We get this definition, again, not only from the teachings of Apostle Paul, but from the life lived by Jesus, even as he approached death on the cross. Self-control is a weird thing to actually give um, application to. I think it's, 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 uh, it, it, like it's one of those things where it's like I, I, I don't think I can be overly prescriptive. I can't tell you how to live your life in that sense, right? But I realized it was not giving you how to practice self-control per se, but I think what could actually be more helpful is to provide other practices that can help encourage self-control in your own life. For example, I'll give you two things here. Practicing silence and solitude introspective reflection. I think we, uh, we don't really do that as much. Take time to journal about your day or your week. What were some of the things that pissed you off? What were some of the things that made you happy? What are the things that you're grieving right now? Introspective reflection can help us see areas of our lives where we are wrestling with God for control and we can help us submit to his ways. For example, the last, uh, I've only been married for like four years now. For the first three years of my marriage, uh, we, were, we were just tanking. It was so bad. And mainly it was my fault because of, uh, I, have, I have temper issues, I have anger issues, very hot-headed. And one of the things that helped me practice self-control, to practice that when I feel my blood boiling, how to not lean into that was silence and solitude. It was journaling. It was saying, what, what is what my wife is saying to me? What is that triggering in my heart? And I realized there's so much shame from, from my, my childhood that it was just constantly hitting. And I couldn't figure that out if it weren't for introspective reflection. And in doing that, I was able to practice and continue to practice and grow in self-control. Second one, practice confession. To those who are ex-Catholics, I don't mean that in a, you, know, you don't have to like find a priest or you know, me or Pastor Justin or whoever. It's practicing confession to someone you trust, another believer. Because the way that we kill sin is by bringing it into the light. Confession of sin, temptations, etc. to a believer that you really trust, it can help you with self-control. And if you are in someone in this room who is a recipient of someone coming to you, please pour heaps of grace and love and understanding on that person as they share things to you. And the last one, third one, of self-control is realize the imago day of the person that you're interacting with. I have a plethora of instances over the last two years where either, honestly, I myself have not practiced that through commenting on things, or being the recipient of harsh comments. And it's so easy in our day and age to not practice self-control because we don't see the person in whom we are interacting with on social media or whatever. Realize the imago day of the person that you're interacting with. Realize and, and know that the dignity that people have is so extravagantly large that they do not res- uh, deserve to receive your harsh words. Practice self-control. Practice holding your tongue or your fingers. And lastly, 
Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel because on the cross of Christ, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus could have come down from that cross to just show everyone that he actually was in control. But he did the very opposite, is that he relinquished his life. He relinquished his autonomy in that sense to die on the cross to fulfill the promises of God, to die on the cross for your sin and for my sin, for the very things that that we sin because maybe we don't practice self-control. Maybe we lean into the gratifying desires of the flesh. He died for those sins. And he resurrected from the grave three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and death. Ascended to the right hand of God where he prays for you, where he roots for you, where he, he, where he champions you to teach you to constantly submit your life, to submit your desire of control to his ways. I want us to, to pray for us, actually, um, as we wrap up our time here, um, because I think self-control is so difficult I think the idea of the self is such a hard water to swim in nowadays. And what I want to do is, is ask the Lord for help in that. So would you pray with me? Lord, I, I do pray for our church here. I pray, Father, that um, in a world of just, it's all about you. It's all about what we want. It's all about what makes us feel good and makes us feel happy. I pray, Father, that you would teach us your ways, teach us to submit our own desires. Lord, you say, for the flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong. And I pray that over every single one of us here, Lord, that in the moments that our flesh may feel like it's overtaking us, I pray, Lord, that the Spirit would just convict us to go in another way and that we would just submit our lives, our consciousness, our egos to the Spirit and that we would just follow in the steps that you provide for us, Lord. I pray, Father, for those of us in this room who are facing any form of addiction, I pray right now that, Lord, you, your grace would be so sufficient for them in the moments and in the nights where they, they feel so tempted to just cave into their addictions, Lord. That they would remember your word, that they would lean into the spirit and remember the grace that you've extended to them, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would guide us, uh, guide our church, guide our uh, people in our church family who, and in our country as we go through this pivotal cultural moment with abortion. I pray that that is just such a loaded thing to talk about. And I pray that you would give us wisdom, Lord, on how to care for those, the women that have gone through an abortion. I pray that you would help us as a church to extend uh, help to those uh, who are single mothers and single fathers. Help us, Lord, in so many different ways where the self now is, a th- is on the throne of all of our lives. Just thank you, Lord, for your guidance in all this. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.